Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. We're looking, we're doing an overview of the whole book as we continue, we resume our series on an overview of the minor prophets. So if you have a hard time finding Jonah, it's on page 821 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's a hardcover Pew Bible in the chair in front of you. Turn to page 821 there. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, right before Micah. Jonah chapter 1. I'll read chapter 1, and then I'll, when we go preach through it, I'll, I'll, read, I'll tell this story. But then when we get to chapters 2, 3, and 4, we'll read it as we go along in the sermon. Hear God's word then from the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord, Yahweh, came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from Yahweh's presence. But Yahweh threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up! Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, What is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from Yahweh's presence because he told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you, for I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to Yahweh, please, Yahweh, Don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Yahweh, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by great fear, by great fear of Yahweh and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. We'll stop right there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we pray now with your word read and with having you spoke, having heard you speak, we pray that you would soften our hearts to your word. Hold up the mirror of your divine revelation and show us the glory of Christ, your glory, Father. Show us our Selves, the grace in us and the sin in us. Show us our world and our moment and what you're calling us to be and do in this time and place. We pray that your spirit would work amongst us. Cause us to not resist your word. Save us from distraction. We need your help desperately. For apart from you, Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. So help us, we pray, we ask, we trust. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Have you ever been commanded to do something by God that you really, really, really did not want to do? And you'd read the text or you'd think of the verse like, oh, why does God have to say that to me? Do I really have to do that? Have you ever then, having this unwanted command, have you ever then proceeded to disobey God and continue with your desire? And then get frustrated with yourself. What is wrong with me? I do believe in Jesus. Why, why do I want this and not what God wants? Every Christian has faced that in their time, in their lives, at a time in their lives. Romans 7, Paul faces that where he talks about warring between himself with the sin that's in him. Jonah is such a character who faced this frustration. And he tells us a whole story about it. Here, well, whoever wrote this book, Jonah's probably a, certainly a source for, for what happened. But here we, we learn Jonah's story, and that helps us navigate our own hearts and our, our own challenges to obey what God wants us to do. So here's the main goal, and I'm sorry, it's a very general main goal. It's not going to help you too much, but this is the main goal of my sermon. Um, I'll revise it at the end, but right now it's, let the story of Jonah teach you about God, yourself, and your world. Okay? That's what I want for, this, for this next, these next minutes. Let this story, we're going to read through the whole story and go through the whole story. Let the story of Jonah teach you about God, about yourself and ourselves, and about our world. If you're taking notes, this will greatly frustrate you because we're going through a story. I'm not really going to have points, or I might make a few comments of insight in the middle, but I'm not going to really apply it till the very end, okay? So we're just going to go, th- and the points of the story are literally just the scenes of the story, okay? Uh, the points of the message. So we want th- to just let the story sit on us. There's, there's a reason why God gives us stories, for us to get wrapped up in them and to feel what Jonah feels and to see what Jonah sees and then to see God, ourselves, and our world through these stories. So let's take this time to get wrapped up in the story. So let's listen to the story. Let's understand the main idea and goal of this story, and then we'll apply it to our lives, all right? So four chapters to the story, if you like. Four chapters to the story. Chapter one, and each chapter is a chapter of the story, okay? So it breaks up neatly in that regard. So chapter one, I'm calling Jonah Rebels. Jonah Rebels. And here, Jonah rebels from God's commission, so I just read to you the chapter. You know the story, but let me retell the story here. So God tells Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh, and preach against it, because the, their evil has come up before me. We read that in verse 2. So there's a commission. Go up and preach, because God, God wants to confront them for their evil. And he wants to confront them with his judgment. And so, like the question I asked you, this is a command that Jonah doesn't want to obey. And you felt that before. A command that you don't want to obey, but God is crystal clear what he wants you to do. Jonah doesn't want to deliver, deliver this message about their sin to the Ninevites. He doesn't want to do it. Now, chapter 1 doesn't tell us why. We might get a better guess as we read on, but let me give you some guesses right now of why Jonah might not want to obey this command even before we get clarity later on. Maybe Jonah fears suffering and torture by the Ninevites. The Ninevites were a brutal people. They tortured people. If you violated them or you offended them, they would be extreme with their torture so that that people would fear them. They were, in some ways, like ancient terrorists in many ways, using torture and suffering as a way of terrorizing people and causing fear. So maybe Jonah didn't want to go because he was scared that he would get tortured and and, um, suffer. Or maybe Jonah was scared and feared displeasing his fellow Israelite nationalists. I mean, after all, in 2 Kings chapter 14, we learn about Jonah that he preaches one of the good messages. Jonah preaches prosperity when God is telling Jonah to preach prosperity. So it's not like a false gospel, like prosperity gospel, the false prosperity gospel that's being peddled today on TV and all over the place. It's not that. God told Jonah to tell Israel that God would restore their lands. And we all love to be the bearers of good news, don't we? And so Jonah happily went to go preach that message. And now he has to go to Nineveh, the enemies of Israel, the people that hated the Israelites, and the Israelites didn't like them either. They were scared of them. And go tell them about God's judgment. So if you were an Israelite nationalist, and you were all pro-Israel and only Israel, God helping another nation, helping the Assyrians and helping Nineveh, 
No way. My neighbors would kill me if they found out I did that. I would lose all my popularity, all my followers. And so maybe that's why he didn't want to do it. Another possible reason why Jonah didn't want to do it is fearing that um, they might repent and be forgiven by Yahweh. I mean, why would God want to warn them of judgment and not just judge them? Why are you sending me, God, to tell them about their sin? Are you, are you sending me because you might want them to repent and you might actually forgive them? No way. Maybe that's a reason why. We're not told yet, but here Jonah has an inner conflict. Should I obey? Should I not? Clear word from God, tension in the soul. Should I obey or should I not obey? And what does Jonah do? He disobeys. Instead of going north East, northeast, I'm thinking of your map. So northeast, instead of going northeast to Nineveh, he goes south and gets on a boat going all the way down the Mediterranean Sea to the furthest point of the Mediterranean Sea, Spain, Tarshish, modern-day Spain. That's where he wants to go. That's what he wants to do. It's like God calling you to go to somewhere in Central America, Mexico perhaps, and then you go to Canada or Alaska instead. It's like, what? God's telling you to go that way and you're going the other way? That's what Jonah did. He got a ticket, fare, and he went on a boat to go as far away as he could from Nineveh. Now, when he gets in the boat, he's having a good old time on the boat, but of course, inner conflict, trying to suppress his conscience as we all do. And so, but while he's there, God causes a storm to go on the sea. And so now the storm is on the sea. The people are freaking out. And so they ask, um, they wake up Jonah, who's on the bottom of the ship. Get up. And so they wake up Jonah. They go and find out who's, who's causing all of this. They find out it's Jonah who's causing all of this because he's running away from God. And he's a pro- they say, what's your business? Oh, I'm a prophet of God. Which God? The God of the sea. As the storm is, you know, they're all praying to their gods. Nothing's working. And he has Yahweh as the God of the sea and, and, the, and the land. Wow. So this is your God. He's the God of the sea. We're in the sea. We're in trouble. So what do we do? And Jonah says, well, throw me over and it'll be okay for you guys. So they don't want to do it. And what do they end up doing? They, they end up rowing against it. They realize they can't do it. And so before they throw Jonah overboard, what do they say? Who do they pray to? Yahweh. Now they're not from Israel. They don't, Yahweh's not their God, but now Yahweh becomes their God. Now they're praying to Yahweh for forgiveness. They're praying for mercy from Yahweh. God has just used Jonah's rebellion to spread the, the news of who Yahweh is to these Gentile sailors on a boat. And they're maybe, in a sense, converted, we could say. They're, they're trusting in Yahweh, and they're fearing Yahweh. Is Jonah fearing Yahweh? Not quite. Not in a way where he's obeying Yahweh. He says, throw me overboard. Now, we don't know. There's different views on this, and it's a story, so I don't know if we could ever be sure. Some people say, um, I always thought that Jonah just did it because that was the right thing to do, and maybe he had a little bit of compassion for for them. And maybe that, that might still be where I lean. But I heard another view this week, which was, maybe Jonah was really selfish and didn't even care about them. He's like, throw me overboard. I just want to die. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Like, just kill me. And maybe that's why. We don't, I mean, we can't be sure. I think it's maybe more like Jonah had a little compassion. I don't want to be super hard on Jonah. He's not the devil, you know. Um, so I, I imagine there is tension in him. But anyways, they threw Jonah over, and, um, and so Jonah is now in the ocean. And so instead of going where God tells him to go and obeying God, he's caught in a storm, he's thrown overboard. And when Jonah was thrown overboard, he thought, I'm gonna go overboard and what? And die, I'm just gonna die in the sea. That's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna go in the sea and I'm gonna drown. And so Jonah goes into the sea while the Gentiles hear about God. And what happens to Jonah in verse 17? Does Jonah die? He does not die. They throw him in the water, but verse 17 says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. A little bit of theology here before we go to the next chapter. God's commands, God has the authority to command you and you should always obey him. God controls all things. What does he control here in this this chapter? The ocean, right? He controls the ocean, he controls the sea, he controls the storm, he controls the winds. He controls all things. God disciplines his people. And God used Jonah's disobedience to exalt himself to Gentile sailors. Chapter 2, so Jonah rebels. In chapter 2, Jonah's in the great fish. And we could call chapter 2, Jonah repents. Jonah repents. Now, it's a very immature repentance, but I would still say it's true repentance. True, immature repentance. 
So Jonah sinks down. He gets caught up by the fish, and let's go to chapter 2. Jonah prayed to Yahweh his God from the belly of the fish. Here's what he says, verse 2. I called to Yahweh in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. So um, it says here that Jonah calls out in his distress. What we learn here is that people call out to God truly and they repent when they reach a point of desperation. And when they don't reach a point of desperation, they're not ready to call out to God yet. And it, it, it's not really the point of how far do you have to go. It's how, much, how quickly can you realize that you're always desperate for God. Amen. We're never not desperate for God. The problem is that we're stubborn, we're self-reliant, and we think we're rich, wealthy, and we don't need anything. We don't need God. And you don't cry out to God until you're desperate. And so he, I mean, he literally hits rock bottom here, right? I mean, he's almost at the bottom of the sea, it seems like. He talks about the earth's gates shutting in on him, and he calls out to God in his distress. So realize your desperate state of need. But let's move on. He, he, um, he says in verse 4, But I, I, I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. So I'm at the bottom of the ocean floor, poetically speaking. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. I'm cut off from the earth. earth the earth's gates have shut me out. I'm dying, I'm dead. Then you raised me, raised my life from the pit, Lord Yahweh my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered Yahweh and my prayer came out to you. It came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. So what do we learn here from the prayer? He realizes his desperate state and need. Every sinner has to do that before he calls out to God in repentance. Now, when he calls out to God, he says, I called out to you and your what? You guys see it there? Two times. I called out or I looked to you and your... Anyone see it? I don't hear anyone saying it yet. I called out to you, I looked to you and your... Holy what? Holy temple. Why do you look to the temple? Why would Jonah look to the temple? Because Solomon prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8, when he dedicated the temple, that when, when sinners repent and when sinners are convicted of their sins, may they look to this temple in Jerusalem and call out to you. And may you hear from heaven and forgive them of their sins. So here's Jonah in the Mediterranean Sea, somewhere near the bottom, crying out to God and looking, at least spiritually in his mind, toward the temple. Find west. He's in the Mediterranean Sea. Find, look west. Look towards Jerusalem and the temple. And he calls out to God. Now, why did Solomon pray that we look towards the temple for forgiveness when we cry out to God? What happens at the temple? Who, who works at the temple? The what? The priests. And what do priests do at a temple? They make what? Sacrifices and intercession. They pray. They represent, and they make sacrifices. And God has ordained in the old, in, in the old Mosaic, or the old Israelic covenant, that you would do sacrifices in the temple, and when you, you do sacrifices by faith through the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, you would be forgiven of your sins. Because sacrifice and priesthood was at the temple. So Jonah, at the depths of his sea, looking to God, Yahweh, which means looking to Yahweh's place, for the, for the sacrifices that Yahweh has prescribed through the priests that Yahweh has prescribed for forgiveness from Yahweh. And at this point, it's under the old Israelic covenant. Now, we know today, who's the high priest today under the new Israelic covenant? Jesus Christ. And does he continually make sacrifices day after day at a temple? No. He made one sacrifice once for all, right? He died on the cross for sinners. And where did he die? What city did he die in? Jerusalem, right outside the city gate. The high priest in Jerusalem making a sacrifice for his people. And so when you reach that point of desperation, you look to Jerusalem. Not physical Jerusalem 2019, but to what happened 33 AD in Jerusalem, Christ dying for your sins and rising from the dead. If you're not a Christian, this is the good news of the gospel. That God forgives sinners. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. And because of that, we're all condemned for our sin. God made you in his image, and you're accountable to him. 
And because God holds us accountable, we are damned and condemned for our sins to hell forever. But God sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross. The high priest, Jesus is the high priest, he sacrifices himself as the great sacrifice for our sins. He dies for your sins and rises from the dead if you will repent and trust in Jesus. Not just say you do, but actually do. If you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, Christ intercedes for his people forever and ever. And so he realizes a desperate need in the ocean. He calls out to Yahweh looking to his temple and he seeks to commit himself to obey God. Look at verse eight and nine. This is what repentance looks like. When you repent, you say things like this. Verse eight and nine, those who cherish worthless idols abandon their covenant faithful love. But as for me, I will what? Sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed Salvation belongs to Yahweh. God saves, but when God saves, he changes me in such a way that I will obey. I will fulfill my vow. My, my, my repentance, Jesus, John the Baptist would say, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. My repentance will bear fruit if you're really repenting. It's not just, repentance is a heart change and it's a confession. But if it's real, it will result in actions. And so the result here is God forgives him. And what happens at the end in verse 10? The Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So Jonah gets spit back onto dry land and that's the end of chapter two. So Jonah rebels and then Jonah repents. And thirdly now, chapter three, Jonah retries. He retries. He gets a second attempt at this commission. He retries the commission. So in verse one, It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. And last time, Jonah got up and went the opposite way. This time, verse 3, Jonah got up and what? Went to Nineveh according to Yahweh's command. He gets the same command, but this time Jonah obeys and he goes to preach. Continuing verse 3, now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. So Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaim. Here's the message God wanted him to proclaim. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. It will be demolished. In 40 days. In 40 days, Nineveh, your great city, the capital of the mighty Assyrian nation, the coming empire, it will be destroyed in 40 days. That is the message from Yahweh to you guys. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed judgment was coming. It's important to believe that judgment is coming if you're going to really repent. They believe they were accountable. Some people just don't think judgment's coming for them. They think they're exception to the rule. They think that they're okay with God, and that's why they don't repent. But they believed God that judgment was coming for them personally. So they proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh by the order of the king and his nobles. By the way, some people say that this is just a parable or it's not true history because people didn't call them the king of Nineveh, but there's a lot of good evidence. One, Jonah was historical and Nineveh was there and some people say 120,000 people couldn't be there. There's evidence that shows that there could be. This is a historical account, not just a parable or a fictional story for a moral lesson. But here's what, here's what the king pronounces. By the order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn. He may relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. So there's the repentance. It's real. It's deep. It's active. It's fruitful. It's observable. And God sees it from heaven. Verse 10, God saw their actions, not just their heart, but their actions. God saw their actions, not just their, he didn't just hear their profession, he saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So what did God do? So God relented. He relented from the disaster. 
that he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. He did not judge them. He did not destroy them. He did not damn them. He relented. God forgave. So Jonah retries the commission, and God forgives. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might say, okay, PJ, this is why I would never want to become a Christian, because your God, the God of Christians, the God of the, God of the Bible, at least some of you, the way you interpret the Bible, you guys have such an angry God, a God of wrath. I mean, God is a God of love. I don't want a God of wrath. Your God is so angry. He's condemning. He's judgmental. He kills people in judgment. He wipes out nations. He sends people to this lake of fire forever and ever to a place prepared for the devil and his angels. I mean, think about the cross. You Christians teach that when Jesus died on the cross, God poured out his wrath on his son. And is that child abuse? How can the father pour, you say your, the father poured out wrath on the son and he judged his own son and you say that the son was innocent and yet God condemned him? I mean, if God is such a loving, forgiving God, why can't God just forgive us? I mean, I forgive people all the time. My child was annoying me last night and said sorry and I forgave them. What's the big deal? I didn't have to punish and judge them. Your God seems like a leftover um, from the primitive religions who's a peevish God who's petty and just likes to get vengeance for his own exercise and display of power. I could never believe in a God like that. If you're thinking something along that line, I could see how you might think that. But let me give you a brief response here that Tim Keller has sketched out in his book, The Reason for God. On the cross, God does not demand your blood, but gives his own. All forgiveness for any deep wrong and injustice entails suffering on the forgiver's part, Tim Keller writes. If you're going to forgive somebody, now here's my explanation, if you're going to forgive somebody, if it's a deep wrong and injustice, to forgive means you have to accept suffering. You can't just shrug off deep suffering. We sense that there's a debt. And either one, you can make the perpetrator pay it down as you feel, which is not necessarily forgiveness, but, um, but vengeance and maybe justice. Or you can forgive, but that's enormously difficult. And we could do, we could, we could do that monetarily. So here's an iPhone. And um, if you borrowed my iPhone to make a call and you dropped it on the floor and you broke it, was completely disabled, then I would be out however much an iPhone costs today. How much does an iPhone cost today? 10000 Did someone say $10,000? <laughs> it feels like that. Yeah, a thousand. Let's just say a thousand dollars. Does that sound right? A thousand dollars? Okay, it's in the ballpark. Okay, so um, yeah, nine hundred, a thousand dollars. So if you if you drop my iPhone and break it, um, if I had the latest one, I don't. But if I did and you broke it, then I could either one make you pay, or I can forgive you. If I forgive you, does the iPhone just get fixed and come back? No. Who has to pay? I do, or I just have to be out a phone. Either way. Because there's a cost to it, I can't just be like, oh, I forgive you, no big deal, and move on. Either I have to accept the loss, or I have to make you accept the loss, but there isn't a way that the loss just erases because we're all being nice and loving and forgiving. There is a real loss that happened. And so if there's real valuable things that get devalued and violated, there's a deep wrong, it involves suffering to forgive. And you know that. If one of your loved ones was violated criminally, you would cry out for justice and you would just be like, oh, just forgive. Even if you'd want forgiveness for their own sake, you, you wouldn't want to just shrug it off like it's not a big deal. So that's number one, is that all true forgiveness of deep wrongs entails suffering on the forgiver's part. But secondly, if we can't forgive without suffering, it's not surprising that God couldn't either and wouldn't. God would suffer to forgive. But instead of God charging you for your sins, who does he charge the sin to? His son himself on the cross. And he takes the suffering for sin. And so I would encourage you to think about Christianity and trust in Jesus because you believe that forgiveness isn't cheap either. And so you're actually believing what the Bible teaches. Okay, so the people here respond with repentance and God forgives. And you know, this is in line with what else the Bible teaches. In Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8, it says this. This is written after Jonah, but this is, shows us the heart of God. Listen to Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8, everyone. At one moment, 
God says, I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, and destroy it. However, if that nation about which I have made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the disaster I had planned to do to it. So God says, I will, if I announce to a nation, I'm going to wipe you out. If you repent, I will relent. If you don't, or even if you're doing well, then and you don't repent when I call for it, then I will destroy. And God prophesied through Isaiah around Jonah's time, maybe a little bit after Jonah, that he would save Assyria and Egypt and bless them alongside his people, Israel. What does the Bible say? That God desires all men to be what? Saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is a true, that's a true statement. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now that doesn't violate the doctrine of election that God chooses those who will be saved. They're both true. But for the sake of this sermon and this text, it's true that God desires the Ninevites to be saved. And so we need to recognize that and align our hearts with what God has revealed. Okay, so Jonah rebels. He gets swallowed by the fish and then Jonah repents. And then he gets a second commission and Jonah retries and they repent. And let's go now to the last chapter here, Jonah chapter 4. And I'm not going to give you the title of this one yet. Let's read first, and I'll give you the title. Okay, so they repent. Praise God, right? You've been sharing the gospel. People repent. What's Jonah's reaction? Because remember, Jonah didn't want to do this earlier in chapter 1. What's Jonah's reaction in chapter 4, verse 1? Jonah was greatly what? Displeased and became furious. He was lit. He was angry. Jonah lost it. He was enraged that God relented and forgave these, this people. He prayed to Yahweh. Here, you know, let, let his words speak because from the abundance of the heart, the what? The mouth speaks. So let, let's see Jonah's heart as, as he just shares the words here in verse 2. Please, Lord, is, please, Yahweh, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. He's giving his reason. This is why I fled away in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Yahweh, take my life from me. Just kill me. For it's better for me to die than to live. It's better for me to die than to live. So let's call this fourth chapter, Jonah rejects. He rejects God. Here God called him. He repented. Jonah repented. Jonah retried the commission. And now Jonah's here. They repent and Jonah rejects God. I knew this is who you were, a gracious and forgiving God. Now, this is a quote that's, that shows up a few times in the Old Testament. Do you know where this first showed up? Where God first said, uh, a God, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, uh, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Anyone know who God said that to first? Moses in Exodus 34. Now, um, in Exodus 34, God said this to Moses, that he will forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. He's a God slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and, and um, grace. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And so Jonah was hoping that God would bring, that he would not leave these people unpunished, but that he would punish and destroy the city. Now, remember earlier I told you that Jonah preached in his homeland to, the, to his nation that God would restore the kingdom, that he was restoring certain parts of the land. And everyone rejoiced in Jonah's message, all the nationalists and all the people who loved their country, whether extremely nationalists or just appropriately nationalists, um, they all rejoiced in Jonah's ministry. But then it says this about Jonah's ministry in 2 Kings 14, 27. The Lord said, the Lord had, had, uh, the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel under heaven. So he delivered them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. So part of Jonah's message was, God will not blot out your name from the book of life. God will not erase your name, Israel. He's going to restore, he's, 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 going, he's, he's going to restore these lands. He's not going to blot you out. That was Jonah's message to his homeland. And now here's Jonah in Nineveh talking to God. And he says, I knew that you were slow to anger and abundant in faithful love. I knew you would forgive them. And he's quoting Exodus 34. Exodus 34 tied to 33 and 32. What's, that? What's the story in Exodus 32? There's a connection here. Exodus 32 
Moses comes down from the mountain with the tablets, and what does he see? What does he see with the people? They're worshiping a golden calf. And so God says to Moses, this is Exodus 32, the end of Exodus 32, get out of my way. I'm going to destroy all of these people. I'm going to blot out their name. I'm going to erase their name from under heaven and start over with you. Get out of my way. And God says to Moses, or Moses says back to God, God, please don't do this to your people. What are the, what are the nations going to think? You just redeemed them out of Egypt. They are known by your name. You know what? God, please blot out my name. But don't, don't blot out the name of this people. And so Exodus 33 and 34, God says, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I am the God who relents when you worship a golden calf. I will not blot your name out. So here's Jonah from a people who should have been blotted out because of the golden calf, and they, and they were forgiven. They received mercy. And then Jonah should have been destroyed and drowned, cut off from earth's gates, right, in the bottom of the ocean, because he rebelled against God, and yet God did not blot Jonah's name out. And now you get to Nineveh, and Nineveh repents, and God relents and doesn't blot their name out. And Jonah is what? Furious. He's angry. And so God asks the, the, the relevant question here in verse 4. Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right? I mean, you were forgiven and shown mercy when you rebelled. Your people, and the reason you're popular in your land is because I forgave your people when they worshiped a golden calf and I relented when they deserved damnation and destruction. And now you're angry that I forgave the Ninevites. Is it right for you to be angry for me to forgive them when I forgave you and your people? Is it right? Yes or no? Is it right? No. What's Jonah's answer? He doesn't give an answer. The story moves on. So let's move on. Verse five. Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. There's a small, I can't help but feel when I hear east of it. You, you know what? Do you feel that? Where's that from? East of Eden, right? Genesis 3 and 4. When, when they're kicked out of the garden where God's presence and grace dwelt, they go east. That's being kicked out of God's place. And here he is east of Eden, just even symbolically. There's, everything rises up and be like, you're in the wrong place, Jonah. You're actually running away from God and placing yourself outside of God's place of blessing. What are you doing? Well, there he is. And he made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade. Almost like they made the, they, they made, um, they sewed fig leaves. They did their own solution. So um, he made a shelter for himself there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Because how many days until the destruction? 40 days. So he's like, all right, I'm still waiting here. I want to see fireworks. I want to see destruction. I want to see explosions. I want to see fire coming down from heaven. I want to see these people get what they deserve for all, all their brutality and sin and idolatry and immorality. I want them to get what they deserve for what they've done to our people. I want to see the show. So he's there waiting in verse six. Then Yahweh, God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. How kind of God. Here Jonah is there where it's hot and God miraculously, supernaturally causes a plant to grow up really fast and cover him and give him shade. How kind of God while Jonah is pouting here. Jonah was greatly pleased. Oh, he's pleased now. He's greatly displeased earlier. Now he's greatly pleased with the plant. Thank you, God. What a nice plant. He smiles. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. <laughs> so then he's really happy, got a nice plant. God appoints a worm, go kill that plant. And the plant, as it supernaturally sprouted up, it supernaturally and even naturally through the worm, it withers. And now the plant dies. So then verse eight, as the, so he was happy one day, one day of happiness here. The next day, it, the, the, the plant dies in the morning, early morning, and then verse 8, as the sun was rising, we know what this is like in Southern California, right? God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. 
He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Just kill me now. Poor me. Life is so hard, Jonah. So then God says again in verse 9, then God asks, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right. He replied, I'm angry enough to die. So here's God slowly, patiently shepherding his rebellious, tantrum-throwing prophet. What does he say in verse 10? Very gently, firmly, and clearly. Jonah, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. How insignificant that plant is. Here and gone, one day. But may I not, you care about this plant, but may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? Can't I care for 120,000 people made in my image who have responsibility for me but have no clue about morality before me? Who have no clue that their sin and their being trapped by lies and, and being damned to hell, being damned to judgment? Should I not care for them? They bear my image. You care about a, a one-day plant, a plant that barely lasted 24 hours, and I can't care about 120,000 image bearers. And so that's where the story ends. It's where the book ends. God challenges Jonah's passion for the plant with God's passion for the city. Let's, get some, let's do a little bit of theological work here before we apply it. Some theological truths here. Is Jonah wrong to want justice? I mean, they were a brutal, sinful people. They did oppress people. They did great, horrific evils. Is it wrong to want justice and cry out for public righteousness? Is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. It's right to want justice. Jonah wants justice for their sinful, brutal, terrorizing, and oppressive people and the oppressive people that the Ninevites were. But the question is, do you trust God? Do you trust God to be righteous when you don't understand how he can be righteous? Do you, do you, have, a, do you have a big enough God that you can trust him to be righteous when you don't understand how he's being righteous? To ask it in a new covenant way, is the cross of Christ enough? Is, is the, the, the death of Christ and the justice and righteousness of God pouring out wrath on Jesus for sinners, is that enough for you to trust God to be merciful to people who deserve to be damned in the hottest hell? Is the cross enough? Is God enough? Is his character enough? Is his word enough? It's okay to want justice, but if you want justice to the point where you don't trust God, your desire for justice has become unjust because justice is defined ultimately by God himself. Amen. So that's one thing. Another theological truth here, the patience of God. Isn't God patient with Jonah here? Overly patient. I mean, consider the irony. The Gentile sailors who, hated, who didn't know Yahweh fear Yahweh, but not Jonah. The Ninevites have... Uh, hear about Yahweh's word and they bear fruit in repentance. But Jonah's fruit, not that long lasting, right? Jonah had the privilege of God's revelation. Jonah knew Yahweh and knew the Israelic covenant. He knew the stories of the Bible. Israel, just like Israel knew the stories of the Bible, yet Jonah still was unfaithful. Just like Israel under the old covenant, even though they had the, the Bible and the prophets and the story and the history, even then they were still unfaithful to Yahweh. This is ironic that, that even though they were this unfaithful, God would still be patient. Jonah's forgiven of his rebellion when he deserves destruction, but he doesn't want the Ninevites to have it. Israel was not erased, but forgiven. I mean, all this is happening. It just makes Jonah's sin and selfishness so clear and detestable. I mean, Jonah's a true prophet with a true religion, but here's his problem. Jonah, so, so God is patient with him, gives a, pl a plant, is patiently shepherding. Here's a, third, here's a third truth about Jonah. Jonah is a true prophet with the true religion, but he has a deep-seated self-centeredness. 
that belittles God, God's agenda, God's mission, God's kingdom. Here's Jonah's problem. Jonah's worship of Yahweh was subtly and functionally self-centered or group-centered rather than God-centered. It's a true religion, biblical truths, true God, true name of God, true covenant of God, and yet his worship was twisted just enough that it was self-centered and Israel-centered rather than God-centered. Jonah didn't love his enemies. He didn't love his enemies. Jesus died to kill the enmity and make his enemies his family. But Jonah was angry. And so the question came up twice. What's God's question to Jonah two times? Is it right for you to be what? Angry. And it's, is it right? It's a question of righteousness. Jonah, you're so passionate for righteousness, right? You want what's right, and them being forgiven isn't right. Is that correct, Jonah? So let me ask you a question about righteousness, Jonah. Is it right? Is it righteous for you to be angry? Jonah's exposed by this question. Is it right for you to be angry about this plant? And so we hold up the book of Jonah and we look at it like we're looking in a mirror and we ask ourselves, what do we get angry about? What, what you get angry about reveals your true center. What you get angry about reveals your God, oftentimes lowercase g. I mean, compare your cares to God's cares and see if you're off. What you're angry about shows what you're centered on. Last week, we went to a family dinner in the Diamond Bar Walnut area, and we were driving home. We were driving home late already, 9 o'clock, tired, get the family in the car, drive home, and Frances realizes 20 minutes in that she forgot her water bottle. It's late, and I'm tired. And I'm like, What? You forgot your water bottle? Now, if I, we've been married 14 years. If this was like year four, I would have like sinned greatly. Um, maybe I would have got angry or just would have said some sharp words. I was fighting to hold it all in, um, but was clearly annoyed and disturbed by Francis forgetting her water bottle. So we had to go back and get it for 20 more minutes, going back that way, and then going home after that. So I was, I didn't blow up. I'm not sure if I was sinfully angry because I was fighting it, but I was irritated and annoyed. Why? Because my God wasn't God who gave me a wonderful wife and was giving me another opportunity to serve my wife and disciple my children. I didn't want that God. I wanted the God of sleep. I wanted the God of comfort. I wanted the God of saving gas money. That's the, that's the God I wanted. And so my annoyance revealed what I truly valued, who my true center was, who my God was. Are God's commands a burden or privilege for you? Are they a burden? Yeah, are they a burden or are they a privilege for you? Are they a burden or are they a joy for you? Are they a burden or a blessing? What do you get angry about? What do you fear more? What, do you, what are you angry about? What, what, what gets you emotionally riled up? Is it the glory of God not being spread to unreached ethnic people groups who desperately need the gospel? Do you get riled up because Satan just keeps blinding your neighbors and they can't see the truth of Jesus? So they keep walking in their own ways and keep walking back to their sin after you love them over and over and over again? Is that what upsets you? That Satan keeps holding them down? Is that what gets you angry? Is that what keeps you up at night? Or is it that now that you gospelize, it's awkward between the two of you and you don't like the awkwardness and you wish you didn't gospelize so that it wouldn't be awkward anymore? Is that what annoys you? your comfort, your convenience about the conversation and the relationship. You know, when we gospelize, why are we gospelizing? We might have the true religion. We might have the true gospel. But our emotions and our reactions and our anger and our irritations reveal our heart. When God commands us to love our neighbors, even our homeless neighbors, are we more angry that they don't get it and that they inconvenience us or that Satan has deceived them to continue to reject Jesus and serve an anti-Jesus purpose as much as you show Jesus to them? What annoys you more? What irritates you more as you gospelize and disciple? Our biblical worship and theology can be used for self-centeredness. It's subtle. It's satanic. And it's here in my heart and in your heart. 
So is our passion God-centered or self-centered? Is our anger God-centered or self-centered? Do we care for what God cares about the way he cares about it? Or do we care about God's cares a little bit, but we care about other cares more? We'll say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, but really deep down, we're seeking something else. Are your cares captivated by lesser and selfish things? What captivate, what, 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 what are your cares? What are your fears? What are your points of irritability and anger? Now, God expects Jonah to receive his grace and be transformed by his kindness in su- and his care in such a way that when Jonah looks at the Ninevites, he would care and extend that care. So here's what God wants to do. He wants to care for you and change you by his care in such a way that when you look out at your enemies, you want to extend that same care for your enemy the way God extended his care to you as his former enemy. That's what God wants to do. That's what God means to do. That's what God intends to do. That's what God expects of Jonah and Israel and you as a Christian and the church. God expects you to enjoy his grace and then to turn around and share it with those around you. God blesses you to be a blessing to others. We desperately, I desperately need my heart to be burdened for my neighbors, for our city, for our region, for LA, and for the nations. Here's the main idea. Okay, so I'm closing it with the main idea and the main goal. So I said, be shaped by the story. But here's the main idea and then the main goal. These are two different things. The main idea is just that, the main idea is those who have God's covenant care must share God's passion to extend that care to those he sends you to. Those who have God's covenant care must share that, must share God's passion to extend that care to those God sends you to. So what's the main goal? The main goal of this book is realign your cares. Realign your cares by God's care for his grace among among people. Refocus. Repent of what you've been angry about. The petty little plants that you complain about, like Jonah. And align your life to God's passion for his glory in your life and in your enemies' lives and among the neighbors and nations. So let me apply it now. Let me give you some applications here as we close. Ask, so Christian, ask God to forgive you and change your heart when it doesn't align with God's desires and his kingdom. When you don't love his sinner-saving, curse-reversing rules spreading, ask God to change your heart. All of our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. We have callous on parts of our heart. Ask God to soften you. Now, Jonah was written to the old Israelite covenant, but he also expects the new Israel, I mean, those who are under the new Israelite covenant to to apply this as well to this covenant community. So Jonah was written so that Israel would apply this and say, hey, we need to care about our neighbors. Not necessarily that we all need to be missionaries under the old covenant, but we all need to care about our neighbors and not be so um, Israel nationalistic in an idolatrous way. That would have been the application to Israel. For us in the church, it's similar. Don't be church-centered, right? Don't be so church-centered, local church-centered, denominationally-centered, Christian-centered, that you don't care about non-Christians and those outside the church. You look at them with disdain and self-righteousness because they're beneath you because they don't understand what you so clearly and obviously understand, forgetting that you were just as blind as them were it not for grace. What does this mean for us as a church to discipling each other? This means we need to confess our sins to each other. So confess your sin to God, confess your heart, your hard-heartedness to God, and then confess your own hard-heartedness, not only to God, but to each other. You know why we emphasize confessing sin to each other in this church? Well, one, the Bible says confess your sins to one another. So that's a good reason, right? James 5, 16, the Bible tells us to do that. But let me read to you a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which really gets at this, the heart of this idea. Why is it often easier, why is it that it is often easier for us to confess our sins to God than to a brother or sister, we could add? God is holy and sinless. He is, just, he is a just judge of evil and the enemy of all disobedience. But a brother or sister is as sinful as we are. He knows from his own experience or her own experience that um, the dark night of secret sin. Why should we not find it easier to go to a brother or sister than to the holy God? But if we do, we must ask ourselves whether we have not often been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin to God, whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves 
and also granting ourselves absolution. So he's saying here, if you, if you don't confess, maybe you're just forgiving yourself and you're granting yourself forgiveness. He continues, who can give us the certainty that in the confession and forgiveness of our sins, we are not dealing with ourselves, but with the living God? Who can make sure we're actually dealing with God and not ourselves? God gives us this certainty through our brother, through our sister, through our church. I'm adding brother, sister, or sister in church there. Our brother breaks the circle of self-deception. A man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. So when you keep all your sin, I just need to confess to God. I don't need to confess to anyone. How do you know you're actually confessing it to God? You might actually just be keeping it to yourself and dealing with it yourself and actually minimizing your sin. Confessing it to a brother or sister brings the reality of God to bear on your sin. That's how you know you're really repenting in many ways. So that's what we need to be as a church. Help each other. Confess sins to each other. Ask questions, ask pointed questions of each other to encourage each other to not be deceived by sin and use biblical truth for self-centered religion. If, you're, if you feel like, man, I just feel like I can't beat sin in my life. I feel like I know God's commands, but I just don't want to obey what God wants me to do in living for his glory and spreading that among people. Let me encourage you. God is patient. God forgives. And God is calling you today to repent. God brought you here to cause you to see yourself in a mirror and repent. He wants to soften your heart. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling for you to come home, to come back, to soften your heart. God will change you. But don't, don't mistake God's patience as a license to go further in your hard heart. Take it as a call to repent. God wants you to be freed Here's the good news. God wants you to be freed from our sinful, oppressive desires that destroy and derail us. God is passionate for his glory. And he's passionate for his glory in our lives. So what is God calling you to do? He's calling you to obey with joy. He's calling you to obey him and seek first his kingdom and spread his kingdom with joy. God calls us to obedience away from selfishness, but we can't do this on our own. Nineveh couldn't do it on their own. They deserved 40 days of judgment. What did Jonah deserve for his rebellion? He deserved to be flooded with God's wrath, right? Flooded, drowned in the sea, and shut off from earth's gates because of his rebellion and his half-hearted obedience. But we failed as well, haven't we? We fail. We, even now, we're hearing a sermon. We want our hearts to be right with God. We want our whole hearts to seek him, and yet we fail. And so we too deserve God's wrath. We deserve to be drowned in the sea and shut off from earth's gates. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus didn't give in to the sin. Jesus did, was, Jesus self, was Jesus selfish? No. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing and became a what? He became a man and then became a servant. And did he disobey or obey God? He became obedient to the point of what? Death, even death on a cross. So Christ, the only one who never questioned or hesitated to obey, the one who was never selfish, but always selfless. He's the one who gets what? He's the one who gets flooded. He's the one who gets flooded on the cross with God's wrath. He's the one cut off from earth's gates. He's the one who's forsaken by God, even though he never deserved to be. And God pours out his judgment on Jesus for every sinner who would ever believe so that we Christians, Bethany Baptist Church, can now obey God with joy so that we can repent and we could realign our desires to line up with God's passion for his glory. So the call to action here, I'd like to give you one action. Confess your sin to God and to a church member. Confess one command that you don't like that's hindering you from spreading the gospel. Confess one sin that you don't like to a fellow church member and to God and ask God for forgiveness and ask for prayer from, from your brother or sister. And if you do that, if you don't do that, you know what? You're gonna get stuck in your self-deception You'll be self-centered in your Christianity. You'll be dominated by anger, not by joy and peace. And your idolatry will only continue and you won't help others know God. But if you do, if you confess your sin, you'll grow in God-centeredness. You'll help others know God and you'll enjoy peace with God in his hard commands rather than unrighteous, selfish, childish anger.
You know who confessed their sin? Jonah did. Why do we have this book in the Bible? Because Jonah confessed his self-centeredness. He confessed his arrogance. He confessed his hypocrisy. And now we're being changed by it. And God is calling us to do the same. God cares about his glory in you and through you to those that you don't easily love. Jonah got it. Let's let God's love and his care for us transform us so that we care for those he sends us to. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for complaining about plants and gas money and losing sleep and the millions of other childish things we get angry about. Realign our hearts to yours. Forgive us and cleanse us from our selfishness and our pride. Give us a passion for our neighbors and the nations that even the unreached ethnic people groups would hear the gospel. Give us your passion for your glory. Change us, we pray. Give us a brother or sister even now to confess sin to that we might be changed by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.